0: Penis and balls. Vagina. Penis and balls. Vagina. P word and balls. Vagina. P word and balls. Vagina. Ass. Come. Ass. Come. Ass. Come. Vagina. She stroked my face with the. Vagina. She stroked my penis and balls.
1: Attention, South Dakota residents. Everything is fine. Everything is beautiful. Go back to your homes, go back to your jobs, trust in the authority Work, eat, stay asleep Work, eat, stay asleep Work, eat, stay asleep Work, eat,
0: stay asleep asleep. asleep. Keeping you docile and distracted during times of uncertainty the
1: South Dakota Department of Propaganda Podcast. Here are your authority figures, Steve and Corny. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the South Dakota Department of Propaganda Podcast, a cynical attempt to distract you from the systematic dismantling of everything you hold dear. I'm your host, Steve, and with me, as always, is my good pal and show mascot, Corny. It's good to be back. First off this week, let's get a report about Gnome's vanity workforce development project from Christy Noam.
0: Well, dear South Dakotans, it seems my grand workforce development plan is heading down a slippery slope, and it's not just your average plug-in-the-leak sort of disaster. Nope. We're talking budget titanic meeting the luxury, tax-dollar-funded iceberg. Sharpen Newell, the brave souls who dared to question the heroic strategies of yours truly, enlightened us to the harsh reality. We've got a lot of job openings, and sadly, no takers. It's almost like the good folks of South Dakota heard about my job bonanza and collectively said, nah, we're good. Yet, I have been prancing around flaunting my Freedom Works Here campaign like a peacock on national TV. Boosting my VP candidacy and trying to lure fresh blood into our state. Oddly enough, while these thousands of job seekers are reportedly applying to move here, it seems they may be struggling with multitasking. They're managing the freedom part pretty well, taking around the local wonders and all. But they're just forgetting the pesky little W in work. Maybe they didn't read the fine print in my patriotic ads. Happens to the best of us, right? And can we just have a moment to appreciate Dan Newell's understatement of the century, Uh, even finding bodies is hard. It's an eerie Halloween tale come alive, an ironic twist in the tale of my razzle-dazzle ad campaign and we're not even near October. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the biggest barrier appears to be affordable childcare. Apparently, the job seekers arrived in South Dakota to discover that childcare costs more than a solid gold ring from Mordor. It's almost like someone, somewhere, wink, wink, forgot to include affordable child care in their beautifully wrapped economic package. So what's our takeaway here? In a feat of outstanding logical reasoning, Joel Rosenthal, manager at Central Plains Tractor Parts in Sioux Falls, suggests that we ought to look more at legal immigration. Ah, a new angle. The lights shine bright over South Dakota. Despite the grandeur of my campaign, it seems the call of the wild South Dakota job market is falling upon deaf ears. But hey, at least we are not just hiring, we're also casually sinking millions into a campaign that's running on fumes. Hopefully we'll soon figure out how to turn all that freedom into lucrative work and finally fulfill our destiny as the dreamy workplace I've been advertising. Or maybe it's just time to admit that an expensive failure is still a failure. But don't worry, South Dakota, we've got your back.
1: You're listening to NPR. I didn't know that. I just, uh, you're telling me now for the first time. Now watch this drive.
0: We did it. We did it, Joe. I'm just chilling in Cedar Rapids.
1: I did not have sexual relations with that woman. If you like the plan you have, you can keep it. Evil Empire. Come on, man. Laughing all the way to the bank. <laughs> Mr. Gorbachev, tear
0: down this wall. Maybach music. Pokemon, go to the polls.
1: Come on, man. I need you to call up Cousin
0: Pookie. Ich
1: bin I'm Deilema.
0: This is fresh air. Let's get back to my interview with Eric Lipton, an investigative reporter for the New York Times. And now a word from our sponsors. I'm Bob Isis of Isis Toyota. And we have a great collection of pre owned certified Toyotas. But there's one thing I want to make very clear. And it's that we have nothing to do with the terrorists over
1: there in the Middle East right now. And that's why we are. The good ISIS. At ISIS Toyota we have nothing to do with Abu Bakar al-Baghdadi and his vicious gang of thugs. All we're trying to do is put you into an affordable, pre-owned, certified Toyota. People don't respect you. To the youngsters, I know you're having fun. I used to have fun myself. But there's something you need to know. Stuff like that? That's a load of crap. That's a load of crap. God damn it. All I'm trying to do is get you into a Toyota. Come down to ISIS Toyota or I'll fucking kill myself and everybody here.
0: He's been a little confused pretty much all week. His short-term memory loss is becoming a real uh, problem. Obama wants to, he doesn't want to talk about it. But you mean President Biden. So uh, just another bizarre statement from him. Remember, Republicans eat their young. They really do. They eat their young. Terrible statement, but it's true. I cringe. I mean, I literally cringe. Ah. Standing at a podium, slurring his way through a speech. Electrocution, I will take electrocution. He's fumbling over his words. He can't construct a coherent sentence. Christmas, remember the department stores weren't, re- they refused to use the word Christmas. These foreign leaders, he might uh, mispronounce their names. The Hamas, starved Hamas, and we took hummus and... On top of being a complete cognitive mess, is frankly a complete ignorant fool. All the time now, we see whales washing up on shore. Because of the wind, uh, those big wind turbines. Does he not care that well, his words are often picked up, whether he's cursing? Our capital, it looks like shit. Let's indict the motherfucker. Who knows what he's going to say next? Who knows what he's going to mistake next? And finally, here's a little Halloween treat for you, South Dakota.
1: The Mask of the Red Death. The Red Death had long devastated the country. No pestilence had ever been so fatal or so hideous. Blood was its avatar and its seal, the redness and horror of blood. There were sharp pains and sudden dizziness, and then profuse bleeding at the pores with dissolution. The scarlet stains upon the body and especially upon the face of the victim were the pest ban which shut him out from the aid and from the sympathy of his fellow men. And the whole seizure, progress, and termination of the disease were the incidents of half an hour. But the Prince Prospero was happy and dauntless and sagacious. When his dominions were half depopulated, he summoned to his presence a thousand hale and light-hearted friends from among the knights and dames of his court, and with these retired to the deep seclusion of one of his castellated abbeys. This was an extensive and magnificent structure, the creation of the Prince's own eccentric yet august taste. A strong and lofty wall girdled it in. This wall had gates of iron. The courtiers, having entered, brought furnaces and massy hammers and welded the bolts. They resolved to leave means neither of ingress nor egress to the sudden impulses of despair or of frenzy from within. The abbey was amply provisioned. With such precautions, the courtiers might bid defiance to contagion. The external world could take care of itself. In the meantime, it was folly to grieve or to think. The prince had provided all the appliances of pleasure. There were buffoons, there were improvisatori, there were ballet dancers, there were musicians, there was beauty, there was wine. All these and security were within, without was the Red Death. It was toward the close of the fifth or sixth month of his seclusion, and while the pestilence raged most furiously abroad, that the Prince Prospero entertained his thousand friends at a masked ball of the most unusual magnificence. It was a voluptuous scene, that masquerade. But first, let me tell you of the rooms in which it was held. These were seven an imperial suite in many palaces however such suites form a long and straight vista while the folding doors slide back nearly to the walls on either side so that the view of the whole extent is scarcely impeded here the case was very different as might have been expected from the duke's love of the bizarre The apartments were so irregularly disposed that the vision embraced but little more than one at a time. There was a sharp turn at every 20 or 30 yards and at each turn a novel effect. To the right and left in the middle of each wall, a tall and narrow Gothic window looked out upon a closed corridor which pursued the windings of the suite. These windows were of stained glass, whose colour varied in accordance with the prevailing hue of the decorations of the chamber into which it opened. That at the eastern extremity was hung, for example, in blue, and vividly blue were its windows. The second chamber was purple in its ornaments and tapestries, and here the panes were purple. The third was green throughout, and so were the casements. The fourth was furnished and lighted with orange the fifth with white the sixth with violet the seventh apartment was closely shrouded in black velvet tapestries that hung all over the ceiling and down the walls falling in heavy folds upon a carpet of the same material and hue but in this chamber only the color of the windows failed to correspond with the decorations the panes here were scarlet a deep blood color. Now, in no one of the seven apartments was there any lamp or candelabrum, amid the profusion of golden ornaments that lay scattered to and fro or depended from the roof. There was no light of any kind emanating from lamp or candle within the suite of chambers. But in the corridors that followed the suite, there stood opposite to each window a heavy tripod, bearing a brazier of fire that projected its rays through the tinted glass and so glaringly illumined the room, and thus were produced a multitude of gaudy and fantastic appearances. But in the western or black chamber, the effect of the firelight that streamed upon the dark hangings through the blood-tinted panes was ghastly in the extreme, and produced so wild a look upon the countenances of those who entered, that there were few of the company bold enough to set foot within its precincts at all. It was in this apartment also that there stood against the western wall a gigantic clock of ebony. Its pendulum swung to and fro with a dull, heavy, monotonous clang, and when the minute hand made the circuit of the face and the hour was to be stricken, there came from the brazen lungs of the clock A sound which was clear and loud and deep and exceedingly musical. But of so peculiar a note and emphasis that at each lapse of an hour the musicians of the orchestra were constrained to pause momentarily in their performance to hearken to the sound. And thus the waltzers perforce ceased their evolutions and there was a brief dis A light laughter at once pervaded the assembly. The musicians looked at each other and smiled as if at their own nervousness and folly and made whispering vows each to the other that the next chiming of the clock should produce in them no similar emotion. And then, after the lapse of 60 minutes, which embraced 3,600 seconds of the time that flies, there came yet another chiming of the clock. And then were the same disconcert and tremulousness and meditation as before but in spite of these things it was a gay and magnificent revel the tastes of the duke were peculiar he had a fine eye for colors and effects he disregarded the decor of mere fashion his plans were bold and fiery and his conceptions glowed with barbaric lustre there are some who would have thought him mad his followers felt that he was not it was necessary to hear and see and touch him to be sure that he was not he had directed in great part the movable embellishments of the seven chambers upon occasion of this great fate and it was his own guiding taste which had given character to the masqueraders. Be sure, they were grotesque. There were much glare and glitter and piquancy and phantasm. There were arabesque figures with unsuited limbs and appointments. There were much of the beautiful, much of the wanton, much of the bizarre, something of the terrible, and not a little of that which might have excited disgust. To and fro, in the seven chambers, there stalked, in fact, a multitude of dreams. And these, the dreams, writhed in and about, taking hue from the rooms and causing the wild music of the orchestra to seem as the echo of their steps. And anon, there strikes the ebony clock, which stands in the hall of the velvet, and then for a moment, all is still and all is silent, say the voice of the clock. The dreams are stiff frozen as they stand. But the echoes of the chime die away, they have endured but an instant, and a light, half subdued laughter, floats after them as they depart. And now again the music swells, and the dreams live and writhe to and fro more merrily than ever, taking hue from the many tainted windows through which stream the rays from the tripods. But to the chamber which lies most westwardly of the seven there are now none of the maskers who venture, for the night is waning away, and there flows a ruddier light through the blood-colored panes and the blackness of the sable drapery appalls. And to him whose foot falls upon the sable carpet there comes from the near clock of ebony a muffled peal, more solemnly emphatic than any which reaches their ears, who indulged in the more remote gaieties of the other compartments. But these other apartments were densely crowded, and in them beat feverishly the heart of life and the revel went whirlingly on until at length there commenced the sounding of midnight upon the clock and then the music ceased as I have told and the evolutions of the waltzers were quieted and there was an uneasy cessation of all things as before but now there were twelve strokes to be sounded by the bell of the clock and thus it happened perhaps that more of thought crept with more time into the meditations of the thoughtful among those who reveled. And thus too it happened perhaps that before the last echoes of the last chime had utterly sunk into silence, there were many individuals in the crowd who had found leisure to become aware of the presence of a masked figure which had arrested the attention of no single individual before. And the rumour of this new presence, having spread itself whisperingly around, there arose at length from the whole company a buzz or murmur expressive of disapprobation and surprise, then finally of terror, of horror, and of disgust. In an assembly of phantasms such as I have painted, it may well be supposed that no ordinary appearance could have excited such sensation. In truth, the masquerade license of the night was nearly unlimited, but the figure in question had out Herod, and gone beyond the bounds of even the Prince's indefinite decorum. There are chords in the hearts of the most reckless, which cannot be touched, without emotion, even with the utterly lost, to whom life and death are equally jests. There are matters of which no jest can be made. The whole company indeed seemed now deeply to feel that in the costume and bearing of the stranger, neither wit nor propriety existed. The figure was tall and gaunt and shrouded from head to foot in the habiliments of the grave. The mask which concealed the visage was made so nearly to resemble the countenance of a stiffened corpse that the closest scrutiny must have had difficulty in detecting the cheat. And yet All this might have been endured, if not approved by the mad revelers around, but the mummer had gone so far as to assume the type of the red death. His vesture was dabbled in blood, and his broad brow, with all the features of the face, was sprinkled with the scarlet horror. When the eyes of Prince Prospero fell upon this spectral image which with a slow and solemn movement as if more fully to sustain its role stalked to and fro among the waltzers he was seen to be convulsed in the first moment with a strong shudder either of terror or distaste but in the next his brow reddened with rage who dares he demanded hoarsely at the courtiers who stood near him who dares insult us with this blasphemous mockery seize him and unmask him that we may know whom we have to hang at sunrise from the battlements it was in the eastern or blue chamber in which stood the Prince Prospero as he uttered these words. They rang throughout the seven rooms loudly and clearly, for the Prince was a bold and robust man, and the music had become hushed at the waving of his hand. It was in the blue room where stood the prince with a group of pale courtiers by his side. At first, as he spoke, there was a slight rushing movement of this group in the direction of the intruder, who at the moment was also near at hand, and now with deliberate and stately step made closer approach to the speaker. But from a certain nameless awe with which the mad assumptions of the mummer had inspired the whole party, There were found none who put forth hand to seize him. So that unimpeded, he passed within a yard of the Prince's person. And while the vast assembly, as if with one impulse, shrank from the centers of the room to the walls, he made his way uninterruptedly, but with the same solemn and measured step which had distinguished him from the first, Through the blue chamber, to the purple, through the purple, to the green, through the green, to the orange, through this again, to the white, and even thence, to the violet, ere a decided movement had been made to arrest him, it was then, however, that the Prince Prospero, maddening with rage and the shame of his own momentary cowardice, rushed hurriedly through the six chambers, while none followed him on account of a deadly terror that had seized upon all. He bore aloft a drawn dagger, and had approached in rapid impetuosity to within three or four feet of the retreating figure, when the latter having attained the extremity of the velvet apartment, turned suddenly and confronted his pursuer. There was a sharp cry, and the dagger dropped gleaming upon the sable carpet, upon which instantly afterward fell, prostrate in death, the Prince Prospero. Then, summoning the wild courage of despair, a throng of the revelers at once threw themselves into the black apartment, and seizing the mummer, whose tall figure stood erect and motionless within the shadow of the ebony clock, gasped in unutterable horror at finding the grave cerements and corpse-like mask, which they handled with so violent a rudeness, untenanted by any tangible form. And now was acknowledged the presence of the Red Death. He had come like a thief in the night, and one by one dropped the revelers in the blood-bedewed halls of their revel, and died, each in the despairing posture of his fall. And the life of the ebony clock went out with that of the last of the gay. And the flames of the tripods expired, and darkness, and decay, and the red death held illimitable dominion over all. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to call into the podcast, you can leave a voicemail at 605-937-8925. You can also send audio by direct message or record a message and send it to info Just remember, anything you say or think while calling will be recorded and may be played unedited on the podcast. Thank you for listening to the South Dakota Department of Propaganda podcast.